Thanks for listening to the Verbatim Word podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. It's always disappointing to run out of something. Aaron and I had been planning a visit to a local restaurant for some time, but things kept coming up and we never seemed to make it. In our small town, there is an authentic Irish pub, kind of random for a small rural Oklahoma community, but it got quite a lot of traffic and we always intended to go. And then COVID hit and things got all weird for a while. Some restaurants shuttered and never opened again, but our small town Irish pub made it through. So on the other side of lockdowns, we finally made it one weekend evening, anticipating that we'd enjoy some authentic Irish fare, corned beef and cabbage. We stepped through the doors, immediately transported to Dublin, Oki style, found a seat and placed our order to the sounds of traditional Irish music. And a few minutes later, the waiter, kilt and all, came back to tell us the kitchen was sold out. All the corned beef and cabbage gone for the weekend. Their supply, well, it was limited and we had missed out. Well, it's all we had set our minds on, so we politely paid the tab for our appetizers and promised we'd make it back in another time since we lived just around the corner. We've been back again numerous times, and on most occasions now, we call ahead just to make sure they still have a supply of corned beef and cabbage. We see this a lot in life, don't we? That things run out. I just finished painting the dining room and was almost done with the second coat of paint when I got to the bottom of the can. No more paint to pour into the tray to reload my roller, limited to just a gallon of paint, and it wasn't quite enough. I was so close to being done and my paint had run dry. It would be almost an hour round trip to get the same brand of paint, time I didn't have. But thankfully in my case, two large pieces of furniture would go against the parts that I did not get with the second coat, so no one will never know, unless we ever move out one day and take the furniture with us. Maybe you've run out of gas. You overestimated the limited amount of fuel in your tank and pushed it a little too far. Maybe even on your way to the gas station when your car started chugging and you pulled over short of your destination. I wasn't in the car but was mowing the lawn the other week and I had one small section remaining and the engine started to cut out until it died completely. The fuel in the tank depleted. There was not an unlimited supply. We see the principle time and time again in life that things run out, whether it be a paint in a can or gas in a tank, milk in a jug, toothpaste in a tube, shampoo in a bottle, or corned beef and cabbage. We don't always have an unending supply. And so it goes with other things as well. How wonderful it would be if we had an unlimited supply of patience or or love or time or energy or opportunities. But as finite people living in a finite world, everything seems to have its limits. But for an infinite God outside of time and space, supplies are unlimited. He speaks and creates everything from nothing. And the Bible recounts that his people are often the beneficiaries of such supply chains, seeing God replenish where man's resources are limited, jars of oil that don't run out, water that pours forth where there is no source. And God invites his own to experience the blessings when he opens the windows of heaven. In the Gospel of Mark, God the Father has been pouring through Jesus the Son, as God's power through Jesus brings healing and restoration to the needy, as Jesus preaches God's wisdom, bringing clarity and the hope of the kingdom through his teaching, as the Heavenly Father pours through Jesus to reach each and every need, and there are many, lepers and lame, blind and mute, broken-hearted, and even the dead, God supplying to meet every single need, none yet turned away unless it was for lack of faith. 
and we've seen a switch as the next phase of ministry moves in. The disciples now being sent out to carry the message and ministry a step further, a critical point of preparation with Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension pending. Last time we looked at the changing of the guard as we gain insights into John the Baptist's passing as Herod Antipas crumbled under the pressure and put him to death. And now it's back to the training ground of the disciples. In a familiar scene and with a well-known miracle, perhaps the most well-known, in fact, the only miracle Jesus did that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Apparently, the gospel writers, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit, did not want us to miss as we see the lesson that where we are limited, God is unlimited. And discovering this can be the most critical lesson needed in being able to be used by God. Let's take a look at Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. Earlier in chapter 6, Jesus had sent out the twelve apostles, two by two, to go out by faith, taking nothing with them, trusting God would prepare a way for them and provide for them. And it was blessed. They preached a powerful and needed message that people needed to repent, to reconsider, and to turn to God. And he had given them power over unclean spirits, and they had cast out many demons and anointed many sick with oil and healed them. It was a success. Lives were impacted, the kingdom advanced, and you can only imagine how pumped these apostles were. They had never done anything like that before. It's like the locker room after winning the championship. You can almost hear the theme song from Rocky playing in the background as they gather back together to Jesus and with one another to swap victory stories. Mark 6, verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. They told him everything. It was the ultimate debriefing. You should have seen it. It was amazing. We've seen Jesus do it, but God was using us to do it, even without Jesus around. Definitely an experience these fishermen and tax collectors, tax collectors had never been a part of before. So much to talk about. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Well, they had been there and God had worked through them to meet the needs of those that they ministered to, they make a bit of a rookie mistake. They wrongly concluded that it was them, the things that they had done and the things that they had taught. It hadn't been them at all. Jesus had worked through them and they were just vessels. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are just clay pots, Paul said. The vessel is just a container. It just temporarily holds whatever is truly of value. We just had a potluck at church, and everyone brought their food in some dish or another. Some brought disposable aluminum pans, others casserole dishes that they took home with them. But as members of the congregation took food in the buffet line, no one really focused on what dish the food was brought in. No one paid much attention to the pan or the bowl or the crock pot. Those were just temporary holders for what everyone truly came for, the food. The apostles had indeed been used by God to do the work of Jesus in those places that they went to. His blessings, his deliverance, his healing power, it had passed through them. They had gone in obedience. They had trusted Jesus when he sent them out by faith. 
The apostles were seeking and dependent on God to show up through them, lest their efforts be fruitless and in vain, because nothing they did or shared or accomplished was from them. It was all God, 100%. So really, when we read here that the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught, they had done nothing. They had taught nothing. It was Jesus working through them. Jesus would eventually teach them this in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. God gets all the glory. Our abilities, our giftings, our power, they are limited. Nothing lasting or impacting. But God, God is unlimited and he can do it all. And somehow chooses us to be the vessels to reach this world to impact, to bring change, to build up, to bless. Just vessels. That's all we are. Maybe maybe you've had the blessing of experiencing that before on a missions trip or after a church service ministering to someone or during a ministry or Bible study or an outreach or a divine appointment that comes up as you're going about your day. When God does something you didn't expect and you get to be a part of it and you reflect on it after and realize you just showed up, that's all sort of a right place at the right time sort of thing. How humbling, how exhilarating. Almost a take your shoes off your feet, you're standing on holy ground type of thing. God was in this place because I know it wasn't me. Such a great place to be in, isn't it? To be used by God. When we have the humility to realize it's all God and none of us. And that's the right place to be, to give God the glory. Because if we do not recognize it as God and we try to take the glory, well, God will not give his glory to another. I'm reminded of King Herod in Acts 12. This is a different Herod than we saw in the last podcast that beheaded John the Baptist. That was Herod Antipas, and this is Herod Agrippa. He is harassing the church. And in Acts chapter 12, years later, we read about Herod. He puts James to death and the Jews were thrilled. It was a real political move and it was working. So Peter is up next. He's put him in prison, but he's waiting for the Passover for a bigger audience to execute him. And Herod is feeling pretty great about himself. And we read this. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and he died. The crowds are giving Herod all the credit, all the glory, and Herod begins believing it. Yeah, I'm pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm really something. Yeah, I've made a name for myself. I should be pretty proud, shouldn't I? And boom, struck by an angel because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Not sure what that really looked like. Usually people die then are eaten by worms in the grave, but I kind of want to see the recording of that when we get to heaven. There is danger in taking the glory from God. There is deception in thinking it is us and not the Lord when he uses us for something good or great or impactful for the kingdom. And the apostles are back, telling all about what they had done and what they had taught. And Jesus doesn't want that taking root in them starting out in ministry, believing they have anything that God needs. So the rest of the passage on this podcast is an object lesson, a ministry training opportunity to show them that they are limited but Jesus is not. So Jesus picks up on the fact that they may be buying into the lie that they had done anything to do with the success of their ministry opportunity. And Jesus immediately nips it in the bud. We read Mark 6, 31 through 34. And he, Jesus, said to them, 
come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Jesus invites them to a retreat, those apostles. First reason, because they had just given out so much as they had gone out in faith to the surrounding regions. It was fruitful, sure, but it was also tough. It was challenging. They faced opposition and spiritual warfare and so many needs. And Jesus, the good shepherd, invites them to get away for some replenishing. They had given out, and now they need to fill up. Such an important principle, as we read a bit ago, that Jesus is the vine and that we are the branches. We need to be filled repeatedly by the Lord, because we are limited in our sources and resources. In fact, we need a constant supply as the branches need from the vine, and how wise we are to often hear from Jesus to us personally, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. That could be a retreat or a conference or a restful vacation, or it could be 15 minutes of quiet on the couch or the terrace with your Bible, or five minutes in your car in the parking lot between appointments, or shutting yourself in the closet for a few minutes as the chaos of the home ensues. Jesus' invitation to come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest. It's one that we need to take heed to, especially in our on-demand world, that always has one more opportunity extended to us or need to attend to. And if we want to have any impact for Jesus, we need to spend time with Jesus, to let Him fill us as His vessels so that we might pour out again. But a second reason I think Jesus invites them to come aside by themselves is in case they are starting to feed off the crowd and believe that they are needed by the crowd. To get blinded by their success in ministry and start thinking, huh, these people need us. And even worse, that they start finding their identity in ministering and receive all their validation and worth and identity from what they do. This can be tough for those in ministry. There is always ministry to be done, so stepping away can be a challenge. And there are responsible servants of God who just drop things, or irresponsible servants of God who just drop things, and that's not good. But stepping away is also a reminder that God is the one who does it, and that those we minister to need to look to Him, and we need to remember that they are His. It can be an unhealthy place for people to start finding all their identity and purpose and value in ministry. Being used by God can be exciting invigorating, life-giving, faith-building. But when our identity starts getting wrapped up in it, that's not a good place to be. We are his children first, his servants after that. He created us for relationship, not for ministry. In hindsight, I think this is one reason the Lord called me off the mission field personally. I had gone out, yeah, out so young and handled a lot of responsibility early on, pastoring, serving, leading, and it started to become part of my identity equating my value with my role as a pastor, and if or how God was using me. And it was really uncomfortable when the Spirit started stirring that we would be leaving, and even more so when I sensed our next season would not be in full-time ministry. It was sort of an identity crisis. Who am I apart from those things? And it was hard, but it was a healthy transition, to know that I am God's son first and his servant second, saved for a relationship more than for a ministry. Perhaps you've been there. 
somehow drawing your identity from the crowd, whether that be on the field or on the court or at the office or even online or or in the church. Finding your identity wrapped up in how many fans you get or how loud the applause is or the affirmations of admirers or the likes of people sitting on the other side of a monitor or mobile device. Our egos find worth and value and identity in what people say that we are, and not always in who God sees us to be. And I think that might be a reason Jesus draws the disciples away too, to clear away the crowd, to clear their hearts and the minds of these disciples, to hit reset, and to come back to a place of being centered on who they were in Him. But the crowds come anyway, verses 33 and 34. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. The multitudes were blessed by the apostles when they had gone out and healing and teaching. But who do they run to on foot? They get there before them, before the apostles, and they came together to him, to Jesus. When given the chance again, the multitudes came to him. Anything good that had happened, they still knew that it was Jesus. And Jesus gets out of the boat, and we see his heart here. He, his heart is moved with compassion. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They were lost, scattered, hungry, needing to be led. They were dry spiritually, especially in a spiritual drought like Israel was experiencing, where the Pharisees had watered down and skewed God's true message. These people were beat up. They were vulnerable. They were bewildered. They were like sheep. How quickly we become empty if we've not been near our shepherd. We are limited as spiritual beings and need to continually come to the source to remain plugged in, hooked up a continual flow from him to us, and he is the source, never running dry, always able to give. Even here with his multitude, his heart moved with compassion, seeing their needs so diverse, so demanding, so draining. Some of you know what this is like, people always needing something from you, whether it be in your family or your social circles, always someone needing something. Or at work, as soon as you open the office or the front door or the email, people need something from you. And by the end of the day, you are drained. You don't want anyone asking for anything. You have nothing to give. They have sucked all the life out of you. I try to give blood at the blood bank every now and then. And the health careers program at the school I work at hosts a blood drive on campus every spring and every fall. And I like to give if possible. But man, the blood bank does a good job staying on top of their donors. You have a window after giving blood where you should not give. I think it's like 90 days. But on day 91, the phone starts ringing. The emails start coming. Are you ready to give again? Apparently, my blood type is in high demand, and they like to remind me of that each time I get a phone call or a voicemail. My blood is special, I guess, and I could really help out if I can give again. But they're really persistent, and they do follow up. One time I had told them we would be traveling and out of town for a set period of time, which I happened to mention. Right after I got home and that window had passed, they were asking again for my blood without skipping a beat, pun intended. It's hard to be grumpy at them because giving blood can save lives, but they do a good job of continually pursuing me for my blood. When it comes to our lives, we give all the time, and we can come to the end of being able to do it graciously. We might still do it in action, but our hearts grow hardened or calloused or bitter. We might even do it passive-aggressively because we are limited, our well runs dry, and we have no more to give. But we'll try, even if we have nothing to give out. 
but not Jesus. His resources are unlimited. And when these people come to him again, he doesn't groan under his breath. He is moved with compassion. He longs to do something for them, and he does. He does the best thing. He begins to teach them. And not just quoting a verse to them or giving a devo or throwing a track their way. It says he begins to teach them many things. It's a lot. If you've ever taught in a church setting or a retreat or a Bible study, it is exhausting, especially those pastors who have multiple services. Most take Monday off just to recover. Well, Jesus teaches them many things because Jesus drew upon the Father for more. And Jesus' source was always unlimited. We need to do the same when it comes to ministering. If we do it in our own strength, we will run dry. If we do it in our flesh, and we people will know it. People, people see the results. The results will show it. But when we depend on Jesus to do it through us, we tap it into an unlimited supply of the blessings of heaven. And we are vessels and conduits of him. Stewards rather than producers. Something we see a visual example of as this scene in Miracle Proceeds. Jesus wants the disciples and us to understand that. So Jesus feeds the sheep. Sheep are helpless, directionless. They need things provided for them, and that's how Jesus saw them and how he sees us. It's a hard pill for many to swallow in this on-demand world that encourages encourages us all to be self-made, independent, self-sustaining. And it's something the disciples have not quite come to fully understand either. While Jesus saw the people with compassion as sheep and met their need, the disciples view things a bit differently. Verses 35 through 38. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. The day is far spent. It's getting late. Remember, they had just come here to rest a while. They came spent. And now Jesus has been giving all day, and they have too, helping with the crowd, supporting Jesus' ministry. So they started this scene drained, and now they are wiped out. You know how it can get at the end of the workday? We'll multiply that. And it doesn't look like Jesus is letting up anytime soon because the disciples initiate it. His disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. They advise Jesus to send them away, to send the crowd away so that they, they can provide for themselves. The disciples' logic and reasoning is that they would all turn to their own resources, do what they can in this situation, each one taking care of himself. This is a natural way for us to think, that it's all up to me. We look at life and situations and circumstances as orphans many times. I'm in this alone. I'm limited by my own resources or my own circumstances, a glass ceiling of some sorts, that we have to do it on our own, complete it on our own, with our own resources and our own abilities. So we rarely approach life by faith, failing to believe in a loving Father who has adopted us, who is willing to share all of His resources with us. When we face a, a challenge or a trial, we panic, assuming we need to get ourselves out of it, limited by what we have or what we can do instead of turning to the Father and trusting Him that He takes care of us. 
The disciples are blinded by this way of thinking, as we are often at times, that they have already done some calculations to figure out how much it might cost for them to cover the expenses, and it's just too much for them, and they won't be able to do it. And they are ready to send the crowds all home, which often happens when we look to only our own resources. We stop short of seeing what Jesus can do. We disband, we go our own ways, we throw in the towel, staying on the natural plane without moving forward to see God move. These disciples have done the math, and they are ready to make the announcement that the party is over. They're convinced that they don't have what it takes. And so Jesus plays along for a bit, asks them to look at what they do have, because it's actually bleaker than they even think. Just five loaves and two fish. For so many, they were conditioned to look to their own resources, to what they could provide, as many of us are as well. One important lesson and concept that they still didn't needed to grasp, that God is gracious. We have God's unmerited favor. We are not limited to what we have or what we can provide or our own might or our own abilities or our own wisdom or our own resources. We can be limited to that if we want to be self-sufficient. But why when we have a gracious father? I'm not going down the path of prosperity teaching here, saying that God is a rich sugar daddy and so we should live extravagant lives and raise our taste level because we deserve it. No, not at all. But Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, telling Paul that Jesus would fill in the blanks if and when needed. Oh, how freeing this is for us to believe, to know that we are not orphans, but sons and daughters adopted by an all-sufficient Father, that we don't need to live under the lie of self-sufficiency, but that we have freedom to breathe in the blessings of a gracious Father. We were at a shopping center recently, and we were going to the second floor of a department store. We jumped on the escalator to go upstairs, and it was broken. So we had to walk up the escalator, no mechanics to propel us up. It felt so weird, if you've ever been in such a situation, on an escalator or a people mover at an airport, and it isn't working. It's like a psychological brain tease. Your mind expects to propel forward with the mechanical motion of the escalator or people mover, but when you get on, you're limited to your own two feet, and it almost feels like you're in slow motion, like walking in slow motion. You should be able to get to the end faster, farther, quicker, and with less effort, but you can't. You're moving only at the pace that you can keep. That's the self-sufficient Christian life. And unfortunately, many, many of us as believers live there too often, doing only what we can do with what we have for as long as we can muster up strength to do it. The escalator is broken because we're not depending on God's power to move us forward. In our lives, in our ministries, in our relationships, in our obedience, in our character, in our influence, in our resources, in our impact, in our callings, We stick to what we know and what we can do, forgetting that Jesus is there. Case in point, at church recently, a woman came up, and we'd only met once or twice before. The first time was when she sat in the row near us, and afterward we had spoken briefly, and she had shared about her son who was struggling as an alcoholic, and this hopeless situation that she was dealing with and struggling and wrestling with. And after she shared, I merely suggested that we pray for him right then and there. And we did. It was a sincere prayer, but not exactly a name-it-and-claim-it prayer. No pulling him out of the depths of hell by our passionate prayers. It was just a simple, why don't we just pray for him? And that was months ago. And then when she came up to me recently, she said, Remember when we prayed for my son? 
Honestly, it took me a couple of seconds to remember, to place her in the prayer that we said together some months earlier. And you could tell that she was encouraged. Her faith had been strengthened. And she shared that her son was no longer drinking and that he had gone back to church. And she said, I just wanted to let you know because we prayed for him together. Honestly, our faith and prayer had seemed so limited. Almost a shrug of, well, let's just pray for him. That's all that we can do. But God heard and God moved and his power is unlimited. When we stick to what we know and what we can do, forgetting that Jesus is there, we fall short of the opportunity to praise the Lord, as Paul learned he could do in Ephesians 3, verse 20, writing, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul realized that God would do unlimited more than he could even imagine. He does not need to be limited by what we are able to contribute in any occasion. Well, I'm comforted to know that the disciples struggled with this self-sufficiency as well, at least at this point. So Jesus gives them an object lesson that they cannot forget. And as I mentioned earlier, it left such an impression that it's recorded in all four Gospels. After they take inventory and find that they have five loaves and two fish, we read in verses 39 through 44. Then he, Jesus, commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. This crowd is about to eat. Not sure if you've seen on the news before and some historical footage that the food trucks pull up during some disaster relief from the midst of the famine. It's hard to control the crowds. It can turn into a mob and riot and get out of control real fast. And I think Jesus wants the disciples to get a good, clear view of what he's about to do, of what's about to happen here, so they aren't blinded and think that someone pulled up a food truck in the crowd and fed them all, or opened some cellar with surplus government rations in the midst of this, robbing Jesus of the glory of what really is about to happen. So he has them sit down, orderly, numbered, and in groups, so they clearly see and know just how many will eat of this miracle. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish the lunch of some boy in the crowd who willingly gave up what he had, a snack that his faithful mom had packed for him as he went off to hear Jesus that day. It was a limited amount of food, not more than a lunchable he grabbed on the way out that day. But Jesus looks to heaven, the source of all that is unlimited. He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. And they were all filled, not just a morsel to satisfy a craving, a filled filling like stuffed, can't take another bite, stop offering me more, I've had enough. Over 5,000 have eaten and are full, and the disciples take up 12 baskets full of leftovers. God never wasting anything that he does, first of all, but also that the disciples would see it with their own eyes, hold it in their own hands. I think 12 baskets for 12 apostles hold the evidence of what had happened. God had been gracious this day and filled in the gaps. Where their resources and their abilities and even their faith had ended, God did more, exceedingly more than all that they could ask or think. It was a turning point lesson in preparing them for what was to come.
Perhaps right now you are holding five loaves and two fish in some area of your life, limited by all appearances and maybe by all means, or maybe even by choice, continually basing everything off of self-sufficiency. In the story, it all changed when they handed it over to Jesus. I mean, he could have taken it and eaten it, eaten it himself, right? A bit of nourishment to keep teaching there and let the crowds and the disciples fend for themselves as the apostles had suggested. But in that small act of faith, a boy handing it to the disciples and the disciples handing it to Jesus, there was an abandonment of the self-sufficiency that was limiting this scene and the beginning of God being able to do exceedingly above all that they could ask or imagine. Some half a year or so later, the disciples would still be learning this lesson. The night before Jesus will go to the cross, when he will tell the followers, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And he would speak of the Spirit who would come upon them and break through every limitation, every hindrance, every boundary, every shortcoming. He would take them and break them and multiply them and feed the multitudes, hungry but eventually satisfied. Maybe that's where the Lord has you right now. Remember, you're adopted by an all-sufficient Father, and self-sufficiency hinders Him from being glorified. You are limited, but He is unlimited. And maybe some of our listeners are still struggling with step one. When it comes to your salvation, you feel like it's all up to you, dependent on just how righteous you can be and you fall short, accepted only as good as you can be and you aren't perfect, as solid only as your ability to do enough to earn God's favor. Your salvation is one of self-sufficiency, and that is not salvation. Saving faith means abandonment of our self-worth, of our own righteousness, and confessing that we need a handout, the righteousness of Jesus, Him imparting His righteousness to us, forgiving our sins freely, unlimited righteousness that's been purchased by His death, His burial, and His resurrection, a perfect Savior dying a perfect death, a sinless one replacing us, His righteousness becoming our righteousness. It's something that many struggle with, even believers, still drawn to legalistic tendency of self-sufficiency. It's futile. And as the prophet Isaiah sighed, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And if we are willing, he will exchange it for an unlimited supply of grace and of forgiveness. Elijah the prophet knew the power of God, the Lord working mightily through this humble servant, who knew that none of it was of him, but it was all of God. And as Elijah is departing this world, he asks Elisha, his protege and successor for the prophetic ministry, he asks this, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Elisha had seen a limited man partnered and serving an unlimited God. And he doesn't just seek that, he seeks more than that. He felt overwhelmed, out of his league, intimidated by all that he would face. He doubted himself, but he trusted the God of Elijah. And he tells Elijah, whatever you had, I'm going to need double of that. The next generation could not ride the wave of the one before. It can't depend on the anointing of anyone else. They needed a fresh outpouring of their own. And the well of that blessing had not dried up with Elijah. There was more to give, more to pour out. And is there for you and I and for the next generation if we will seek it. But it takes abandoning self-sufficiency and tapping into the vine directly. An unlimited source, a gracious Father, an all-sufficient God. Lord, it's you that we need, nothing more. 
Forgive us, for we have turned to resources that you never meant us to, and we have robbed you of the glory that was meant for you. But you, Jesus, only you are the all-sufficient one, manifested most fully upon the cross of Calvary, the all-sufficient sacrifice, one that brought an end to all other sacrifices, because yours was unlimited in its scope and the grace that it wrought. Lord, provide for us all that we need, and work in us and through us in a way that neither we nor the world can claim that it was us. But do it so that you get the glory. Lord, give us peace where we are anxious, because we feel abandoned and alone, and like we need to figure this out on our own. Instead, draw alongside us, hold us in your grasp, and may we yield and surrender to you greater still. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.